Hi, I'm Pamela Wallen, and welcome to another edition of No Nonsense. The Internet is not only the most powerful space for conducting commerce and sharing information, but it has emerged as the most powerful forum for personal communication. Most governments in this country for the last 25 or 30 years have taken a hands-off approach as content is already subject to many laws and regulations. But that is about to change. The Trudeau government has now declared it wants the power to censor or delete your tweets or your Facebook posts if, and I'm quoting Heritage Minister Stéphane Guilbeault here, if it infringes on social cohesion, not sure what that means, or if they consider it to be a, quote, political taunt. In other words, a criticism of government and its policies. This is, in my mind, a full-on assault on free speech in a democracy in peacetime ever. We don't want governments policing free expression. Daniel Sai teaches law, technology, and culture at the University of Toronto. He's also a former policy advisor for the federal government on issues like intellectual property. And he joins us uh, today. Thanks so much, Daniel, for being here. Thank you, Senator Wallen. Great. I can't figure this out. Um, Is this a situation of unintended consequences? They set out to try and and, uh, squeeze more money out of the big tech companies and make them pay the same bills that broadcasters do and that this was kind of an unintended consequence? Or is this some deliberate act to control criticism and, and how we talk to one another? Well, I, I can say that if you look at the history of how um, the heritage minister, this goes back to Melanie Jolie, the predecessor for Mr. Gibel, mm-hmm. um, there has been sort of an incoherence. Um, and on the one hand, uh, they had announced they were going to uh, get Netflix to contribute millions of dollars for cultural industries in Canada without charging a GST. Uh, and now we see a radically different approach, which is much more aggressive. Part of that is also because of uh, a multilateral uh, um, cooperation among Canada, Australia, uh, some other countries uh, with respect to tackling big tech. Uh, and what's resulted yeah. in that is, I guess, an incoherence in terms of how to approach big tech uh, when these, these countries are trying to formulate the policies as they go. But you could go ahead and say, look, uh, Canadian broadcasters have to kick into this cultural fund to make sure that we're developing Canadian content. You could ask uh, the Googles and the Facebooks and every, you know, everybody to kind of pay up. But that's a totally separate issue from whether or not they're now going to monitor and perhaps censor what we're all saying to one another. This is kind of apples and oranges. Yeah, the interesting thing is it went from being uh, what some critics have called more or less a cash grab for the cultural industries to help support uh, people uh, who are artists and so forth here uh, to get funding from uh, online giants. Uh, What's happened, I think, is the government has sort of conflated with Bill C-10 to two mandates. One mandate is to ensure cultural industries, Canadian cultural industries thrive and Mm -hmm. uh, are not exploited. And on the other hand, it's gone into um, a different area, which is more about uh, regulating speech, uh, preventing hate, uh, you know, exploitation online. And that's 
actually conflated with Bill C-11, which is in the works, which hasn't been uh, disclosed, and that relates to privacy. So I think what's happened is they've chosen almost two different tracks in terms of approaching this and put it together in one bill related to broadcasting, and it's confused the whole issue. It's made it worse. There was, um, as they were debating this in the early stages in the House of Commons, a clear paragraph that said, Okay, we are not subjecting individuals and their tweets and their Facebook posts to these kinds of regulations. We're we're not going to do it. Then it it went off to committee for study and they took that out. So it must have been a deliberate act. Well, I think from my own experience, because I actually worked uh, with Industry Canada, which is now Innovation, Mm -hmm. Science and Industry, um, you have really two warring type factions in the governments. You have uh, the people on the industry side who are more free markets. Uh, They're really against uh, censorship. Uh, Also tends to be uh, divided even based on linguistic lines. It tends to be more Anglophone in Industry Canada, as opposed to Heritage, which tends to be more Franco-centric, but also at the same time tends to be more artist-oriented, more uh, copyright owner-oriented. And so what you have is this, this kind of conflict within um, just the policy making side. And this has nothing to do with the political direction being given. It's just the fact that you have different ministries and with heritage taking control, uh, taking the lead in this file, uh, you are seeing kind of, a, a multi-headed, uh, monster approach where they have different mandates, uh, but a lack of coherence in the actual policy making. And also, as you said earlier, uh, the law of unintended consequences, mm-hmm. policy making made to try to placate certain political uh, constituents does yeah. not relate or translate into excellent policymaking. And, and into the real world. I was reading something uh, today that the Alliance for Equity in the Music Industry, and they're currently petitioning the federal government to include provisions in C-10 that would mandate Canadian creators to submit race-based data and make everything subject to review by a chief equity officer. I mean, this is now um, political correctness or whatever you want to call it, sort of seeping into every part of legislation. This this is very risky when you're coming and dealing with the concepts of free speech and our ability to debate and criticize in this country. Well, what I think is really interesting is you you see that they're taking antiquated uh, legislation and we're talking about the Broadcasting Act that has right. not had a major Which needs overall. fixing, no question. <laughs> and and they're trying to relate it to a new digital reality where uh, yeah. it's it's really based in the free ebb and flow of conversation, discussion, debate, ideas. Um, and so when you're trying to apply old legislation or old law and trying to um, make it uh, applicable to today's uh, technological and social environment, you're you're going to have problems. Is is the idea because we've heard from in the last few days, a couple of former CRTC commissioners, people who might be in charge of regulating this and make sure, you know, ensuring that there's enough Canadian content in my tweets or in my Facebook posts. But they're calling this dangerous, uh, that this is beyond slippery slope. It's a deep dive. And I think the problem is the confusion uh, that we've seen with respect to what and who is defined as a broadcaster. Is yeah. it uh, you or I? 
the average uh, person, uh, or is it uh, does it go beyond that to professional uh, productions such as uh, you know formal, more formal type broadcasters? Um, we don't have a clear sense of that. Uh, we do have assurances now after the minister has backtracked uh, from the public out- outcry, uh, but we don't really have a clear sense of what that means in terms of who qualifies as a broadcaster and who should be regulated and and how is that practically feasible and yeah. also in terms of cost. Uh, so there's a lot of different uh, questions being raised just because they haven't really defined uh, who a broadcaster is in the context of, of technology. Well, are the other words that they're using, like they're pursuing social cohesion and and all tweets and comments would have to be in line with that. Or they would disallow or censor political taunts, which is, as he defined it, went on to say criticism of the government or its policies. This is kind of scary. I, I think th- it is definitely a, there's an issue of a slippery slope. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, the minister has to first pony up and come to the table and say, I really want to hear what Canadians have to say. I think that's no. the one missing element in this is sort of the transparency and accountability. I mean, on the one hand, there's a bit of hypocrisy here. We are, you know, the government is saying we want big tech to be transparent and open about what they do right. with their algorithms and how they take data and they impact privacy of Canadians and use it, use data for third party purposes and for advertising and, and, you know, basically exploiting Canadians in that sense. But at the same time, the government has to come to the table. And I think it's, it's a fair question and a fair request to have like consultations and to see what Canadians are really thinking and, and actually really investigate, you know, if they're, if they're going to do this, they shouldn't do this in half measures. They should really open up and what they mean by broadcasting. What do they mean yeah. by the broadcasting act? And does um, that mean me as a using my Twitter account? Did I suddenly become a broadcaster because I'm using this t- technology to, uh, to share it? Yes, exactly. And um, and we know that uh, from our experiences with um, the United States as a, as a model, uh, when it comes to tweeting, there can be large impact. But at the same time, Americans have a different approach to free speech. Uh, and they care about it a lot they, more than we do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely a different perspective than Canada. So the question is, um, to what extent is the minister now willing to work in a minority government? Yeah. Uh, where there are uh, opposition, even from the NDP, uh, yeah. with respect to the lack of clarity and what does this mean about free speech and was this going to impact the can it go the other way? You know, if, if the government, uh, if you go from uh, one government to another, can we see the opposite extreme? Um, and so those those are actually quite important questions, which uh, have a huge implication in terms of free speech. No, it's it's something that I've struggled with all my life, because as a journalist, obviously, it's the lifeblood of of what you do in a democracy. It's supposedly the lifeblood of how it functions. And and I look back over the words of, of JFK, a nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. And and. I see these signs here. Harry Truman, former U.S. president, said once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of the opposition, it only has one way to go. And that creates a country where everyone lives in fear. They really wrestle with these issues. Um, It's in their constitution in in a profound and dominant way. What is the difference in the psychology? Why don't we seem to care as much about this in this country? 
Well, Canadians and Americans, we we like to uh, talk about our differences. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. I think a lot of Canadians do believe in free speech. I think the big question yeah. is, I think um, what we're seeing is in the United States, it's very individualistic um, and uh, libertarian type approach where individual liberty is very important. I think in Canada, because we do have more of a traditional um, sort of collectivist approach. And this goes back to, you know, uh, socialized medicine, um, Tommy Douglas and Saskatchewan and everything else. I think, I think in Canada, we do tend to kind of, uh, look at the greater good of the community as opposed to necessarily individual rights. Um, but I don't, I mean, at the same time, there's a balancing act in Canada. Constitutionally, we do have, uh, the Charter of Rights allows for free speech only to the extent that it har- that it may end up harming other people. And we talk about hate speech, we talk about obscenity and things that uh, can cause greater harm. And so there's limitations to the extent of free speech. Uh, so in Canada, I think it's more narrowly um, sort of uh, defined, whereas in the United States, I think free speech is really uh, a real uh, gut uh, type issue there. A basic tenet, yeah. That we do have. I mean, you raise a good point. We do have plenty of rules in place uh, to control hate speech or to um, attempt to ruin somebody's reputation by spreading falsehoods. Uh, uh, all of those things that, that there is regulation there, although I don't know, there are places where it doesn't happen, those protections. But but going this next step of what they seem to be talking about, which is actually having a government appointed third party or maybe the CRTC start to monitor this. I mean, people are already concerned enough about big tech knowing what our shopping habits are and our viewing habits are and our news consumption habits are through their algorithms, as you say. But if this now becomes a one on one um, personal assessment of individuals in Canada for the content of what they're saying, that's a whole other game. Well, and I think the the issue about oversight is uh, not something that has been properly addressed. I mean, we, we still have to wait and see what Bill C-11 is all about. And what I don't understand yeah. is why C-10 and C-11 should have been released at the same time when they had a game plan as to what C10 means and what C11 means, because I see a lot of overlap, but it doesn't really, they don't really jive together uh, you yeah. know, at this stage. It doesn't appear to be. Um, I think the, the issue of oversight, uh, as you pointed out is, uh, is a concern uh, because the, Broadcasting uh, CRTC it relates to broadcasting standards, and that there's a logic to that because you're dealing with historically traditional significant uh, players, uh, big networks, where it's it's sort of easy to regulate, and they serve a mandate uh, that's much broader than uh, you know people in your little Facebook group. Yeah. Um, and so at the same time. Uh, that that has to be a question that needs to be answered is uh, what do they mean by oversight? I, what I can tell you is, you know, uh, when it comes to what we're seeing with big tech, um, Apple has announced as of last week that they're not going to allow third party sharing of uh, data unless the user consents. And they have a billion Apple users that use the iOS with Apple. Mm. Uh, and so what you're seeing now is actually big tech against big tech, which makes it much more difficult for United States government uh, to kind of lean on one side or the other, because now you see Microsoft against Google in terms of the search engines. You now see Facebook actually against 
Apple because Apple doesn't want a third party sharing of apps on, of data unless there's explicit consent. Uh, by the users. And app, uh, Facebook doesn't like that because it means the data is not going to be uh, as usable or as useful when it comes to advertising dollars for their, their customers. Or as um, free to them, but not to uh, to others. So let's. I want to get to the, the 230 issue in the US, but let's just wrestle this other one for a moment. So right now, part of the concern that the government and lots of people are raising this issue that the big tech gets to uh, take the content of newspapers or broadcasters or even individuals and share it. And they're not paying anybody. I think that's why the music industry is uh, particularly upset that their work can be taken and shared. So is that something that government can impose from the outside or does it have to be the decision of these big companies uh, to actually control that to some extent themselves? Well, what's really interesting is there's been different approaches taken in Australia. Australian government has been aggressive. They have come out and created what we call the Australian model, where if you are linking to uh, news sites, uh, you pay a fee. Um, And what's interesting is Microsoft has come out, as we mentioned earlier, there's there's a fight between Microsoft and Google. And Microsoft said, we are happy to negotiate and we were happy to pay for accessing links. Yeah. Um, at the same time, what we saw with uh, Google and Facebook is a pushback, uh, you know, in the, in the instance of uh, providing links, you know, in some cases, the, the news was actually, uh, they were, st- they stopped distributing it, legitimate news sites. Um, and so that has the real uh, impact when it comes to Australian fires and other things. So I think what was really interesting is when you're seeing other countries approach it, some countries are being more aggressive and proactive um, and other ones uh, like Canada has in the past has taken more of a passive approach to see how the market would, would develop. Um, the question is, uh, is, is it incumbent on big tech and are they naturally inclined to play ball? Well, they are businesses in the, in the business of making money. Uh, $61 billion profit for the top 10 big tech companies, record profits last uh, quarter uh, with Facebook. Um, we saw $4.8 billion of ad revenue goes to Google alone in Canada for online advertising out of $8 billion. There's an 80% duopoly between Google and Facebook just in Canada for online advertising. Right. Their mandate is to make money for shareholders. It isn't necessarily to uh, self-regulate uh, and it isn't necessarily to uh, give money back to newspapers and traditional uh, media. So there is going to be inherent conflict and sometimes you need a referee to step in. That is kind of the issue, too, because we're seeing governments subsidize or bail out uh, traditional media and newspapers. I don't think there's anybody left in the country uh, that hasn't taken a handout from government, which uh, which compromises them. There's you know, there's no question. It raises uh, a question mark about their objectivity. Um, can can big tech really be required to subsidize an industry that is not so much dying as morphing and changing and maybe should have taken on that process a lot earlier? A lot of the newspapers were slow to go to online formats, uh, big broadcasters as well. Uh, and now we're sort of being we're seeing the big companies being asked to just contribute more to support that system. 
I mean, that, that's an excellent point is, um, you know, in a free market, companies should be able to uh, innovate and try to, uh, you know, uh, uh, compete. Um, now, the thing is, we have a total of almost uh, 60 lawsuits in the United States alone uh, by various attorney generals, including the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, uh, related to antitrust uh, right. monopoly practices. So we do now know we, we're starting to see this this uh, wave of lawsuits that yeah. uh, are pushing back against uh, the dominance of big tech. Uh, the fact that uh, the FTC put an order in that Facebook cannot purchase a company worth more than $10 million because uh, they don't want during this lawsuit because they do not want uh, the unfair advantage of having big tech buy out um, yeah. Uh, little little competitors and basically take take out the competition. Um, so I think you know it's a good point that uh, in, in a with a market where the playing field is relatively even, um, people should be allowed to compete and fight and innovate. Uh, uh, but at the same time, if it becomes so imbalanced, um, so structurally, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, out of out of whack, then there has to be a referee that steps in, and and this has happened in the past. Other industries, oil, big uh, Standard Oil is an example. Uh, we have had it with AT and T, Ma Bell. Uh, breakups happen, um, and it, and it's just a function of the market. Uh, you know, you allow innovation to happen, but if you get too big and you start becoming anti-competitive, uh, governments have stepped in, and and those industries still thrive. Yes, it, it does. As we talk about all this, one gets a sense, though, of some helter skelter approach, like there is big tech and technology and consumers just going on fast forward. And here are governments running behind saying, whoa, whoa, up here. We, we need our piece of the action. We need some money. We're not sure what you're doing or how you behave or how you got so big, but we want in now. And that it's always going to be a problem when you're running from behind. And I think uh, the other thing is, I'm going to, you know, there's practical reality. We're in a minority government. Um, And you have uh, the major newspapers in Canada, for instance, who are struggling. And, um, and so the government is, is very uh, attuned to uh, the impacts on media now that maybe they weren't so much so when uh, they're in a majority position. And so it's a reality that we have to face, you know, there's an old saying, um, that I used that I learned uh, in my uh, days at Cornell. Uh, you know, the bastards can't uh, read, but they know how to count. You know, when it comes <laughs> when, it, when it comes to votes, you know, they're looking at their constituents and they're figure, trying yeah. to figure out, you know, what do we do to placate? The one of the interesting things that I uh, I read the other day or heard the other day, and it's kind of key in all this, is that as we watch. Uh, governments try to, you know, control a little bit what big tech is doing and and try to tax them or um, extract money from them. The problem in that scenario is, or even limits on what they can reproduce as news or what they can share, is that in that world, disinformation or anything that anybody says is free And then information that has some credibility to it, some journalistic standard imposed on it is behind a paywall. So we're letting we're letting the conspiracy theories and the disinformation grow exponentially while containing what might be more fact based than than other sources. Well, you know, Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist and psychologist, um, had a very good uh, point that he made in his research, which is 
lies, falsehoods influence <laughs> people. Um, yeah. And um, and in, in the digital world, there's no cost to uh, publishing a post uh, on any of those big sites, uh, which is a false narrative. Um, and um, and people will believe it. Um, now, in terms of the sort of the I guess the the moral evaluation uh, of of those types of uh, false statements, um, you know, on one hand, we want to allow to have we want to allow discussion to, to occur, but we also know there's a cost to uh, information that that is false. You know, with, whether it's re- relating to vaccines right. or um, other things that have a potential social. Uh, cost, and so it's a it's a it's a balancing act of trying to uh, regulate um, speech, and at the same time uh, try to kind of look at the fact that algorithms have had a role, unfortunately, in the past of uh, ex- what, what they call amplification, where they've yeah. taken incendiary, inflammatory, false uh, information and uh, sp- help spread it, um, and so I think. I think one of the things I um, I think about is, you know, on the one hand, we want to have uh, free speech and we want to have good discourse, but how do you compete with defamation or outright mm-hmm. lies and things that uh, assassinate people's character or it's just purely false, uh, you know, by saying uh, something that's objectively, factually wrong. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the discourse has kind of uh, become that. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I think it's a tough, tough way to tough thing to regulate. Some of us have lived through that and, and it's hard enough to battle uh, disinformation or misinformation about yourself in the traditional media, you know, to go and get a retraction because something is false. It doesn't matter. Once they've posted the story online, it's gone. It's viral. It's out there. You don't uh, you don't pull it back. Um but to do that on 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 big tech sites themselves, not not the traditional media, but the new media, that is it's impossible. Well, we've we've done something very similar to it, both Canada, the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, we have the notice and notice system in Canada when it comes to copyright infringement. Um, if mm-hmm. an ISP gets notified that they're infringing content, they notify the user. So the user, um, you know that they can't access it. But when it comes to uh, the United States, they have notice and takedown. That's even more stringent. And uh, in fact, a lot of the big companies like YouTube follow the US policy, which is if they are notified of copyright infringement, they take the content down immediately. Now, that could be a potential solution in terms of um, self-regulation as opposed to having over, you know, like an external oversight or morality police is simply having a system in place where uh, a Facebook or YouTube, uh, if they are notified of content that's defamatory, they take it more seriously and they escalate it. They treat it more like they do with copyright. And the reason they've taken such a hard approach, um, strong approach with copyright is because the entertainment industry represents $1 trillion U.S. That's the U.S. intellectual property value. Um, and so there's a huge incentive to make sure you don't make Disney angry and you right. don't make Warner Brothers angry or any of these content providers angry with, with their music and their TV and their other contents, their movies. So there's an incentive to have notice and takedown, uh, which was passed 
It's been uh, in Canadian, you know, we have Canadian version of it. There's no sense of notice and notice. But the reality is it can be done. The question is getting um, big tech to implement it. And of course, they're going to complain about cost and right. uh, practicality of enforcing it, but they've already done it with copyright. So yeah. um, it's question- a little different when you're talking about uh, what's commonly known as alternate facts. You know, you you view the world differently depending on whether you're the subject of the takedown or the takedown or or, you know, what it may be. Um, that's pretty hard to judge. Copyright is one thing. This was published by somebody. We know that it's on the record Therefore, if you're misusing it, you will be punished. But saying something about if, if you say something about me or me about you, it might be just, you know, my version of events versus your version of events. Yeah. And they've done that. What they've done is, um, you know, for instance, Facebook has um, added fact checkers now, not for all the content, because they have billions and billions of messages. Exactly. And posts. Yeah. But for some of the content, they have they have flagging options for that. Now they also have sophisticated algorithms, and that's the next. That's why I'm keep asking about Bill C11 because right. you know that's what's, where, where the rubber hits the road. In my mind, yes, I I think uh, you know, be quite frank, uh, this is no nonsense with with you, Senator Wallen. <laughs> um, given the fact that Bill C10 appears to be a, just a big misfire. Yeah. When they came up with the legislation, it looks like they just they simply got it wrong when it when they started branching out and and not properly defining who a broadcaster is. They made it too broad. At the end of the day, those issues could be resolved or dealt with uh, in Bill C eleven. Um, and but this shouldn't be a social experiment where you throw legislation out <laughs> into the wind and hope it works. Um, they should have consultations. They should look at yeah. and see what Europe's doing. An example is Europe has the general protective uh, directive and um, they, you know, it, it can work. The problem is they're under-resourced when it comes to their privacy commissioner. So you could have the best legislation, but until you have public consultations and you well-resource it and you have a clear sense of what it's trying to accomplish, um, then you end up with misfires. Because as users and consumers, we have to, agree to this either implicitly or explicitly otherwise it won't work and this is the, this is where uh, one of the issues is when you do a consent and you click that button first party data they can do whatever they want if you're surfing yeah. on facebook or google um and you've already consented yeah. first party data is is all theirs but it's the third party data if you if you are not aware that you've consented to it but you already have by clicking a button they can do what they will when they sell your data to else other parties. And that's where Apple's jumped in and said, no, we're going to yeah. make it explicit now. If, you, if you're going to do third-party sharing, we want our users, our 1 billion users of the iOS to consent to it first. And that may be where the government is going. Uh, one, one comment I heard from, uh, I think it was an Apple individual, was uh, the law is simply the minimum. What we do mm-hmm. as big tech is above and beyond. And that's our prerogative. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting point. So um, these algorithms, of course, that operate and and we somehow think when we go online and hit Google search that, uh, you know, we're getting the facts. Uh, Somebody's telling us what the actual most important information is about that particular topic or that individual. But 
they have their own best interests. They want you to go to their own search engines to look for news or information. They're not giving you the broad swath of that. On the other hand, they kind of say this is a little bit apples and oranges, but big tech says, look, um, we're offering right now free distribution for all this stuff. Even you struggling news organizations and people that want to do podcasts or have a vibrant Facebook, we're letting you all do it for free. So quit complaining. You know, that argument makes sense if it weren't for the fact that there's a, such a distortion in terms of uh, profit and ad revenue. Um, you know, all these, what about all these little competitors that had started up that had better technology and were bought out? Right. Um, so as the user, it would, I would love an alternative to Facebook. Um, but if, you, and if you're a small business, you don't have a choice because 99% of the people are using Facebook and not... Uh, MySpace, which, you know, basically doesn't exist, um, our competitor, if there are no competitors out there and you've got a duopoly or monopoly, like we do with Google and Facebook, uh, you're stuck. Um, there are no other choices. And there's this concept called preferences. So in a competitive environment, um, the assumption is that people are playing fair, but if there's preferences, like you said, where they're mm-hmm. only directed to YouTube pages um, right. when they should be directed maybe to other sites, there is an issue. And in fact, a Canadian Toronto company called Rumble has filed a yeah. lawsuit on that very notion of preferences as unfair competitive practices. I, I want you've raised this issue because this kind of came to people's attention a bit when um, when in the U.S. they simply took Donald Trump, they, they simply shut him down. Um, and said, no, you can't appear on Twitter. And then he went off to try and be on Parler, which is a competitor as well. And then they shut Parler down, the sort of the the powers that be, the big tech. When What you think of Donald Trump aside, <laughs> when you see the power of one company being able to silence the president of the United States, and this was not hate speech or any of those things that's regulated. These are just his rantings and ravings and opinions and political views. Um, Does that actually feed the demand for competitors or does the heavy hand just come down heavier? That was a really interesting case study because uh, it was Jack Dorsey, the uh, CEO of Twitter that uh, initiated that. And then everyone followed suit. Right. Um, it was almost like they were uh, lemmings following, yeah. um, you know, the leader. Um, why didn't they do it earlier? Is that sort of the big question is it took you literally a month or so before the actual election? Vote yeah. To, to make a decision on this, where were you before? And so that raises a lot of questions. So in the four years or three years and 10 months, um, there was no action being taken. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously a lot of things happened in that period of time. Uh, you know, a lot of people were exhausted by the, the news mm-hmm. cycle being dominated, uh, by all these tweets and amplified in all these other websites. He so, also drove up all their ratings, but that's a separate question. <laughs> and, and, and there you go. And so you have this yeah. marriage between, uh, the technology yeah. and, uh, money ratings and so these things are inescapable, you know, as we discussed earlier, these are inescapable things. You know, on the one hand, we talk about why doesn't big tech regulate itself? On the other hand, money is an incentive. Um, and even with broadcasting, um, yeah. having it on the top of the news cycle 
gets you more viewers. And so there you go. It's, it's one of those things where, uh, where does decency take over and where yeah. do our better natures uh, prevail? Well, that's, it, it raises the obvious question because as you say, in terms of timing, they took him down, um, Donald Trump just before the election, uh, lots of big political con- contributions from big tech to the democratic party. And then you look here and see that bill C 10 is coming when we're heading into an election cycle. And, uh, there seems to be some desire to, to contain or limit political criticism. This is very troubling. Well, and and I guess the question in this is when there is discussion about, um, you know, quashing dissent, um, that's the type of language we hear about other countries. Um, exactly. We, we don't, we don't, we don't expect to hear that about uh, Canada. Um, right. So as I said, uh, this this is a bill in, in need of much needed revision yeah. um, and debates. I think the one thing I think, as you as you know, as as a legislator, um, it's good to have debate. It's yeah. good to actually have input and to change the law based on feedback. Uh, you end up with stronger law. Um, yeah. And and that's one thing that I'm, I'm actually quite hoping for out of this is that uh, the minister comes back and opens it up for more debate. Yeah. And that and that people's eyes are opened a bit. A couple of other topics I just want to touch on, because around the whole Donald Trump issue, there was a big discussion about Section 230, a piece of legislation passed, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago in in the U.S., um, which protects big tech in that sense. I don't know how else to say it. They're just um, they are. um protected from the same rules and regulations. What do you think will happen to Section 230 in the U.S.? And what should we be looking at as a result of that debate stateside? Well, even the FTC has come out and said they're they're looking at revising or considering how to change Section 230. We've had Senate Judiciary Committees. We've also had the House Committee in the U.S. looking at competition, uh, start talking about Section 230. So, you know, Canada tends to follow what the, uh, mm-hmm. the big guy in the States does. So uh, yeah. what will likely happen is there'll be a lot of eyes on this from a Canadian policymaking point of view. A lot of ex, a lot of bureaucrats and ex-bureaucrats like myself will be seeing what the Americans do. Um, what you are going to see, though, is I think this debate has really heated up um, is Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act was really meant to be um, a way to allow the internet to grow in the nascent days without regulation. So if you were a platform or a redistributor of content, uh, you shouldn't be on the hook for the content that you're distributing. But what we know is you sued for something that I say on Twitter if you that's the point of it. Exactly. So you're you know, the fact that you you um uh, retweet a comment made by Donald Trump shouldn't get you uh, into legal jeopardy. The fact that Twitter allows tweets to be retweeted shouldn't put it in jeopardy because it's simply a platform or a digital service provider. Um, now, the problem with that is there are sites that consciously exploit net neutrality in order right. to show very um, controversial pornography or other types of content and just say, uh, we see no evil. Uh, we hear no evil. We, you know, right. we're not, we speak of no evil. We're going to just 
let this content be distributed and we're going to pretend we don't even know about it. And, and, and using Section 230 in, a, in the wrong way, where it's really treated as a way to kind of give blanket protection for, for, for these types of uh, blind uh, facilitation of bad content. Um, yeah. that, that's problematic. Uh, other big questions like Huawei and we're seeing, um, I mean, that is a very particular case with Meng Wah and then what has happened to the two Canadians, but the repression of free speech, if I can say that uh, in China, and we're seeing it play out in Hong Kong, um, that they have their own alternate systems to Google and Facebook. They've got Alibaba and all this other stuff. Can they um, change the, uh, I don't know, the, the lay of the land very fundamentally by providing an alternative. And when people become fear that in Western society, it's too restrictive. Um, is that the only time that we'll see any balance or will people find other ways to go? It will rumbles and parlors actually grow or I know that's a huge topic, but tackle it bit by bit. Well, China's actually taken a very aggressive approach. And the difference there is um, you can go from being a billionaire to being a prisoner. Um, yes, so, as, as Jack Ma found out. Yeah. So, I mean, there are there are circumstances there where the Chinese regulators have ex really strong powers um, and uh, and they don't delay if they have to take action. Um, obviously, it's different uh, in a democracy yeah. and it's different here in North America. But uh, the reality We're hoping is it's different. These signals aren't good ones. Carry on. <laughs> but, but what's really interesting is what we're seeing is in a in a in a country like China, which is uh, obviously uh, has a totally different uh, political and legal system. They have seen the problems of big tech. They're Chinese domestic big tech companies like <laughs> Alibaba, which is now like a top 10 global bank. They've they've married. Yeah technology and the and cryptocurrency exactly and the same uh, we've heard echoes of that with uh dm which is facebook's cryptocurrency that they want to release as well yeah. to give people access to that type of uh, currency and so they have gone from being like tech companies into parallel governmental type authorities which right. is very scary and which is one of the, the big drivers in my opinion as to why the government of china stepped in and immediately started uh, erasing billions of dollars of market value off Alibaba and Jack Ma because they, they said there's a need for this. Um, and if, if that's happening in China, then it, what it says is, you know, uh, you know, North Americans, Europeans, you know, the, the risks of big tech are in every society. And it's a question mm -hmm. of how you go about regulating it. Do you think, um, that there will be any of these competitors like the parlors or the rumbles. Do you think there's a hope or will they be tiny, just little operations that give voice to one group or another in the political debate? I think, that, I think that was one of the disappointing things about parlor is it got co-opted yeah. um, by extremist elements of the far right. Uh, and, and actually rumble is an interesting example. It's Canadian, a company and it was known for having cute pet videos if you want to see cute cat and dog videos yeah. you, you went to the rumble um now it's but, alan dershowitz <laughs> yeah and then now now you want to see alan dershowitz uh yeah. not quite as cute as a cat or or uh, you know, <laughs> no, a dog. no he's not 
so you, you know, you, you have an issue there, right. In terms of the, of, uh, in terms of these sites getting co-opted and then the branding gets just lost. Um, what I think should have happened and it's, and it may be, and you may be correct, maybe it's too late, I don't, but I don't think it is if the government uh, has the right uh, regulatory framework as you know, it would be nice to have competitors. I, you know, it's kind of sad that for social media, the one word that pops in your head is Facebook. Um, What happened to MySpace and all these other companies that, you know, WhatsApp is owned by uh, Facebook. Uh, It would be nice to have some of these things separated and and that's one of the remedies that they're talking about in the states is is actually breaking these companies Let's up. Just break it up. Yeah. So many interesting questions and we will invite you back again when we see how this all unfolds and what the government really intends to do. So Daniel Sai teaches law and technology and culture at the University of Toronto. And this is where all three meet in this debate. That is uh, that's for sure. Thanks so much. I'll leave uh, I'll leave today with I'm. Paul, who's uh, the producer of this, always laughs at me when I quote Noam Chomsky, but he was, of course, a great linguist and a thinker when I was going through university and an inspiration. And he said, if we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, we don't believe in it at all. And we have to allow those differences of opinion to be there, criticism to to flourish um, as we move towards some kind of change and regulation on this. Going to be interesting to watch. Thanks again, Daniel. Thank you. Great. That's it for No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. Thanks very much for being with us. Bye. 